This is A People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR Studios. I'm Suzanne Hogan. It's just like living while black gets you killed. The same dynamics, same variable, the names just change. I can't say that I necessarily understand being an Irish male or Caucasian male. I can be empathetic. I can seek to understand it. I can listen. I try to empathize, but I cannot understand what some people experience on a day-to-day basis. We made t-shirts immediately that said Black Lives Doesn't Matter. We marched in South Kansas City, we marched in Brookside, we marched in Prairie Village. I saw people coming out of their homes in Prairie Village cheering as we're walking down the streets. You know, Olathe, Overland Park. Um, it, was, it was cool just to see that coalition of support. Every year, every day, and every moment that passes is a part of history. We say that a lot here on this podcast, but 2020 was especially monumental, a year defined by two events that history will remember as seismic. We were in the midst of two pandemics. Randy Fickey is a pastor at Unity Southeast in Kansas City. One was a, was a pandemic we couldn't see, which was the coronavirus. The other is a pandemic that we can see with our eyes, which is uniformed officers murdering people of color, murdering black people, murdering our poor. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was murdered by a former Minneapolis police officer. It happened in broad daylight outside a corner store where Floyd apparently tried to use a fake $20 bill. And in front of a crowd of bystanders who pleaded for the officer to stop, to take his knee off of the neck of Floyd, who was handcuffed. But Derek Chauvin, the officer, pressed his knee on Floyd's neck for an agonizing nine minutes and 29 seconds. Chauvin was still kneeling on Floyd's neck when help arrived. The paramedics had to ask him to move. Floyd was dead and had been, according to the medical examiner. Last month, a jury convicted Chauvin of murdering Floyd. But on that day, May 25th, 2020, a teenager had used her cell phone to record the murder. And when the video went viral, it ignited an outrage expressed during weeks of protest in Kansas City and around the globe. And the George Floyd thing was just the last straw for me. I just think that a lot of people hit their breaking point. I thought, like, how long is this going to keep happening, you know? I thought, you know, when is the end? When is enough enough, you know? I just... man calling out for his mother mm. to see this man who can barely breathe to see this man who has died while basically in the custody of those who are charged with protecting and serving him and to see that he looks like me it's hurtful very 
This is a special episode of A People's History of Kansas City, produced in collaboration with KCUR Studios and KSHB Channel 41 Action News. One we're calling 929, the minutes that moved Kansas City. Because time seemed to stand still during those nine minutes, 29 seconds, that Chauvin pinned Floyd to the ground. The murder of George Floyd sparked a movement a long overdue reckoning of racial injustice in this country. But no one person experienced that movement in quite the same way. This episode, we're taking the pulse here in Kansas City. What has changed and how are people feeling a year later? I'm tired of crying. I'm actually, I'm actually tired of shedding tears. For 76-year-old Dr. Barbara Johnson, who was raised in the South and lived through the 1960s, through the civil rights movement. Floyd's murder added more despair to all the traumatic racism she's experienced over the years. She thinks back on the long list of black and brown men and women killed because of racism in our country. She thinks of Emmett Till and the names of so many others. Try to get on your knees for nine minutes and 29 seconds and just on one knee. Oh, hell, I, I, I didn't last three minutes. The racism that is often called America's original sin seems to have no end, stretching from slavery into the 21st century. It's spawning a new generation of activists, though, like high schooler Tamara McCullough of Coffeyville, Kansas. Little kid in a small town. We shouldn't have a target on our backs because of our skin tone or like our hair. And Ryan Sorrell of the new activist group Black Rainbow. COVID-19 exposed the existing inequalities and white supremacy embedded within our system. I'm a white guy. I'm from Missouri, right? My family's super conservative. We don't talk about race in my family. Like, that's just not a thing that has come up. It doesn't come up, And with George Floyd, I started asking questions. Kansas City and America turned their questions into a mandate on police. Our profession doesn't excuse us from being called out. So that means, that means to me, obviously, I'm black. So that means that in this uniform, out of this uniform, like my life matters or your life matters as a black individual. I don't see it as a matter more, matter less. It's just that we matter. Some protesters think the police receive too much of taxpayers' money, which they use to mistreat marginalized communities. They want some of that money distributed differently. Why don't we fund our schools? Why don't we fund safe housing? Why don't we fund neighborhoods? Why don't we fund increased job training? Yet for all of the Americans who saw a murder and see racism stain, there are still those who don't. Burning up things, tearing up you know, cities, there's no justification for that. I don't believe we have a race problem. I really and truly don't. I really and truly don't. It has been driven by the media for as long as I've been alive. Just as masks divided Americans during the pandemic, some like Pam Grisafi of Lee Summit don't think systemic racism is a problem. And former police officer Don Jenkins took issue with protest tactics. I don't mind at all protest. I don't mind anything. I think, in fact, when you block traffic or you burn things or break things, you turn people against your cause. Therefore, 
you could make people that are on the fence or not really worried about it turn against you and your cause. In Kansas City that weekend after Floyd's murder, there were protests, vigils, marches from downtown to midtown on Kansas City's east side, KCK, Johnson County suburbs, and in surrounding small towns. Let's start at the scene where some of the biggest protests took place, on the Country Club Plaza, that weekend right after Floyd was murdered. KCUR reporter and photographer Carlos Moreno was there covering the event. It was just a sea of emotion, a collage of colors and, and movement and shapes that were just coming straight to the camera. Carlos captured riveting images of protesters and police officers in the midst of this public outcry and call for change. He recently followed up with some of the people he photographed to see how they feel a year later. One of those people was Aluatoyan Akinmuladun. I have six brothers, and every time I think of black men getting killed, I instantly think of my brothers right away. She it was one of the people to organize some of the very first protests out in Mill Creek Park, and she was very surprised at the turnout. In that first weekend, Thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathered and made their voices heard. And Aluatoyan Akinmuladun says a year later, she still believes people need to continue to stand up and call for systemic change, even after Chauvin's murder conviction. At the end of the day, George Floyd doesn't come back. And that's unfortunate. And even all black people who've been killed by police officers, their lives are gone. She wants justice for black men in Kansas City, who have been killed by police. For me, it wasn't about taking a side. It was about doing um, something for humanity. I would say that the Kansas City protests were probably the first time that I realized that the tide was truly turning as I saw whites and Latinos and people of color and my Asian brothers and sisters all coming together, the LGBTQ community coming out and really rallying for something bigger than any of us individually, but rallying for something that was good for the common good of all. Carlos, you also met up with Pastor Randy Ficke, who believed the protests of that summer signified a moment of needed unity. You know, the thing about Randy, he is multiracial. And he did note, as we were looking through these different photographs that I showed him, he says, look how many white people are out there. He was really impressed, again, at not just the youthfulness, but certainly the color makeup of the crowd. I think that if, if um, Jesus was around today, he'd be in that march. Carlos did run into a bit of trouble getting some of the people in his photographs to talk to him. Some have been reluctant to talk to the media. Some have just outright refused. He says there were two main reasons people refused. One, they were afraid of being targeted by the police if they were identified in the media. The second concern I heard is that from a lot of uh, white people is that they don't want to speak for the black population. They don't want to take up airtime away from their message with their own thoughts and ideas. That's interesting. I wonder if that perspective would have happened uh, a year before. I don't think so. I, I think the, the awareness from these protests, the, uh, the, just the overall knowledge people are gaining, just the way people's awareness, people's wokeness, people's ability to synthesize what's been happening since the George Floyd protest, I think people are starting to grasp the difference between simple protest, not doing anything, and being more active and being more more conscientious of the way they approach race relationships and social justice.
He was also able to track down 24-year-old Brian Cantanka, who talked about his disappointment with the police response to the protests that summer. I was very frustrated, very frustrated with the police, just because seeing that show of force, you know, like they had snipers out, they had riot gear, they had, you know, just an outrageous number of law enforcement. Brian Cantanka is black and says the Chauvin verdict felt like a moment of hope for him, a step in the right direction. But he still believes police have a lot of work to do. I think it just drove home what we were doing there that day was to protest police brutality. And, you know, I think that they just showed how much of an issue police brutality really is. In Kansas City, the protests did turn violent. People marched in the streets, threw objects at police, some were arrested, hurt, and police deployed tear gas. I think Saturday might have been the most violent. That was the night they burned a police car. That was the night a lot of tear gas got, got released in the park. I know some people got their eye, one person at least got their eye shot out. Somebody else's ankle was injured. Uh, there's a lot of windows being bro- that were broken on Saturday night. And this was the first time in a long time I actually felt a little endangered at a protest. I felt some compassion for the police because they were standing in a rows and people were just hurling vile, infective language in their faces. Captain Joel Lovelady of the Kansas City Police Department was there. We were getting rocks and bottles and can of beans uh, thrown at us. You know, various objects and uh, I believe they had already burned out a vehicle or two and the assembly had been called unlawful and they'd been given orders to disperse and directions where to and we had deployed gas. That was a long day. He understands people were exercising their First Amendment right and that many people were there to protest nonviolently. I think there's several takeaways that you can look from it of uh, obviously there was a voice for change or explanation um, and frustration. So I think you've got to look at it holistically of what can we do as a department to be better? What can we do communication-wise to make sure that we have open channels to get that feedback back and forth? Attorney and activist Stacy Shaw has been representing some of the protesters who were injured or arrested during the protests. I have clients that have lost their hearing. I've got clients that were seriously injured. Um, people were maced in the face. They were body slammed. These are teachers, um, or daycare workers, restaurant workers. These are regular, everyday people that you see in the grocery store that just decided to make a stand and stand up for something that they believed in. And you see these regular, everyday people that have never been in trouble, usually have never protested or been activists before. You just see them so violently and callously treated by city employees. It, it is unreal. There were even suburban moms from the group Wall of Moms on the front lines, like Kathy Downing. We had one mom show up with oven mitts on, ready to catch, you know, uh, the, the, the tear gas canisters and throw them back, right? She was ready.
Marvin Gaye's What's Going On became an anthem for political change. Patricia Brown Dixon remembers when it first came out, and she believes it still resonates today. I had to do something. I made my own sign. I made Black Lives Matter out of a big orange poster board with purple letters, Black Lives Matter. And I live in the plaza. And I put that sign, I have taped it on my deck window so that my neighbors, these, you know, who are mostly affluent and uh, are rich, which I'm not, uh, can see it and just be reminded. And I hope it rankles their nerves. George Floyd's murder pulled back the curtain on the frustration many African-Americans have felt for years about racial injustice. It propelled them into the streets and even to publicly display it in their neighborhoods. I hope they hate seeing it. I hope they think, oh, no, not in our neighborhood. I I want them not to be comfortable. And and I don't care whether they like it or dislike it or agree. I want them to just see it. Luke Martin covers race and culture for KCUR. He drove around Kansas City talking to people like Patricia Brown Dixon, who felt moved to show their feelings in that form. From big banners to small BLM signs and windows to colorful displays of a wide range of human rights messages, many Kansas Cityans were moved in a new, very visible way to express themselves with signs in front of their homes. A couple of folks told me um, that they thought it was kind of the least that they could do. Um, For one reason or another, you know, one woman didn't feel comfortable going down to the protests because of the coronavirus. Um, And so for her, this was a a show of support. It was the least that that she could do. One of the people Luke talked to was Rebecca Maddox. She's white and lives in Brookside. When I put up the Black Lives Matter sign, I was thinking, like, I wonder when I'll take this down. Like, maybe after the election in 2020, I'll take it down. But we're so far from social justice, I feel like, yeah, I don't know when I'll take it down. Maybe when police stop killing Black people, that would be, (sighs) yeah. And Brad and Cindy Kuhlman, who displayed a Black Lives Matter sign in front of their Mission Hills home. Try to educate yourself. You put a sign in your yard, but I don't know, is it enough? I mean, we talk about it a lot with our family. It's a big point of conversation with our friends which I think is all beneficial. Um, We have seen changes in some of our professional organizations, which are now focusing more on white privilege, institutionalized racism, systematic issues. The Kuhlman say that is one of the great noticeable changes that they've been seeing. But when the protests first erupted, they admit some of their own neighbors and people they knew were fearful about what was going on. Literally, we had a friend who was arming themselves, buying guns, afraid, really characterizing what was going on on the plaza as, you know, the... Well, the quote was the riffraff. The riffraff, the riot. I mean, they're just... The riot, yeah. They're trying to avoid saying the really, really bad words that they were thinking. That's all that was. They were convinced that the that the protesters, that black people were going to leave the plaza and come and ra- start raiding houses in Mission Hills. It was I, it got to the loony extreme on that side. And so that was very 
And then on the other side, we have friends who were going down to the protests. I mean, we had people saying, I would never let my children go down there. It's dangerous. And I was like, well, my kids were down there all day. Reporter Luke Martin says for a lot of the people he talked to who displayed these signs, it was also about a connection to other issues. Other people tied it to issues that were going on in their community already. So uh, gentrification was one that I didn't necessarily expect. But I had a woman tell me that her sign was a warning to white people from out of town who has, have been buying up old houses in her predominantly black neighborhood. And so she told me, you know, this is a sign saying I'm still here. Um, I also had uh, Stephen McBride, who lives in the Oak Park neighborhood on Kansas City's east side. He told me that uh, his flag, he had a Black Lives Matter flag in his window. He told me it was a reminder to other black people to value their lives. A lot of people, you know, would like say that, you know, us black people hate the police and hate the hate anyone, you know, in public service. And that's not true. I mean, if you look at that sign there, thank you first responders for being essential. Yeah, I put that out there and that's been out there even longer than the Black Lives Matter banner. Probably a good three or four months longer. A lot of his message was directed at the black community itself. So his Black Lives Matter flag was a reminder to other black Kansas Cityans. The other sign was a reminder, I think, to everybody else to say, you know, just because I think black lives matter doesn't mean that I'm anti-police or anything like that. He was saying, you know, two things can be true at the same time. We can hold these two ideas in our head and that's okay. Another person I want you to talk about is Russell Hill. Yeah, Russell Hill lives in Independence, on a corner lot there in Independence. Um, He's a white man who comes from a very conservative uh, family in Missouri. He had heard about police violence before. He knew it was a thing, um, but he had never really been moved to do anything about it. And with George Floyd, I started asking questions. So here I am almost 40, and now I want to know what's going on. He told me he bought a whole stack of Black Lives Matter sign uh, signs for his yard because after he started putting them out in his front yard, uh, they started disappearing. I've had people, you know, honk, and I had one guy in an old beat-up pickup truck, a white guy, you know, yell at me saying, you know, all lives matter, and drive off, you know. <laughs> So, okay, whatever, man. Um, and that was the thing that I, you know, struggled with, uh, you know, is, is these all lives matter people who are literally doing nothing to make sure that that's true. This past year was the first time Kansas City expressed itself in this big way with signs. I'm wondering, why do you think that change happened this year? I think the driving force behind that was really the gruesome nature of George Floyd's murder, just the very visible nature that it took. I mean, everybody saw that murder and it was it had an impact like nothing else had up to that point on a lot of people here in Kansas City, you know, and that's despite the fact that Kansas City has its own long history of police violence. Could you talk a little bit about that? You know, you can't cover a protest or a vigil in Kansas City without hearing the names of the local police, the the local victims of police violence, Ryan Stokes, Terrence Bridges, Cameron Lamb, Donnie Sanders, 
just to name a few. Um, in fact, there is a research collaborative that collects data on police killings nationwide at mappingpoliceviolence.org. They have Kansas City Police Department among the top 10 in the country in terms of police killings per capita, uh, with an average of nine killings per year since 2013. Their numbers also show that a black person in Kansas City is 4.3 times more likely to be killed by KCPD than a white person. So police violence is not a new thing in Kansas City by any means. Yeah, Kansas City is one of the very few places in the country that does not have local control of its police commissioners, which actually is a lasting remnant from the Pendergast era. Kansas City's police board of commissioners is instead appointed by the governor of Missouri. The only one who's not is whoever is the mayor of Kansas City at the time. I'm wondering, Luke, could you talk to me about what you heard from people just about this kind of bigger issue of police mistrust and accountability? I kind of heard two different schools of thought. Um, I think the angle that is most vocal and that most people know about already um, because it gets the most media attention is this idea that there are no good police. Um, that, you know, or at least there are very few of them and that we need to basically completely rebuild policing and police departments from scratch. Um, I think a lot of people have objections to kind of the messaging around defund the police as a slogan. Um, but that's kind of the idea there that we need to, you know, reboot, um, things to make policing in this country less racist. Um, the other opinion that I heard, from a lot of people was that the vast majority of police are good people uh, doing an infinitely complicated job and that fixing the problem is a matter of better training, of uh, weeding out bad seed cops. So, you know, that said, I will say that everybody I spoke with thought that police in this country have a racial problem and that they treat black people differently to how they treat white people. And everybody said that needs to be fixed. But, um, you know, how they wanted to fix that varied. Every four years, vote for your city council people. Every two years, vote for your state reps, vote for your state senators, vote for your prosecutors. To be frank, ever since, you know, Trayvon Martin, like, I just don't have a lot of trust and hope in the judicial system you know I felt that this judicial system wasn't really designed for black bodies and individuals who look like me. Defund the police is I don't like the term because I think so many people think it means like just to abolish the police well we can't do that. The cops I really don't think that they get a fair a fair hand in all of this you know they do so much for the community and here they're putting themselves on the line and everything else I think that they deserve respect and gratitude and peace, <laughs> you know? When they talk about defunding the police and all that, like, I get it. Like, we're giving you, you know, 80% of our budget. And the result is you're terrorizing and harassing a bunch of people. And a lot of people got killed like that. Maybe we could use that money better, <laughs> you know? Maybe police aren't the ones who respond to mental health crisis calls. I mean, there needs to be some other service available that is capable of de-escalating situations. I keep seeing things happening and it doesn't appear that policemen have gotten the message. We need the police to protect 
us, and I know there's you know a small amount of them that aren't doing things correct. KCHB's 41 Action News anchor Dia Wall has played a really big role in putting together some of the voices you've heard during this special. For me, the ultimate goal was to bring this melting pot that is Kansas City in the midst of a national and, I mean, worldwide movement and put everybody at the same family dinner table, so to speak. Dia had a lot of heartfelt and hard-hitting conversations with people in power, police, and protesters. And she found a common thread. Everybody wants the people they love to come home at the end of the night. Everybody. We're all praying the same prayer. It's time for us to get in the same room. Hold us accountable. One of the people Dia talked to was Captain Jeffrey Hughley, a black officer for Kansas City's police department. That accountability goes both ways because it can't just be us holding you accountable when you run that red light, but you not holding us accountable when we get out of line. So I think that accountability should and needs to work both ways. I do think his identity as a black man does give him some depth and context around what the protesters are fighting for. We're still held to the same standards, if not higher, than citizens. We still follow rules. We still follow laws. So this uniform, or kind of commonly referred to as that blue wall, no, it's, I see everything and it's black or white, you know? It's not, not much gray area or blue area. It's either right or wrong. There have been calls from protesters and civil rights groups for police chief Rick Smith to be fired. They even projected that message on the front of City Hall. One major change that has happened within the department is Kansas City police now have body cameras. And they've made changes in how officer-involved shootings are investigated. KCPD no longer runs their own investigations. But abolishing the police is not an option, says Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas. Police department's always going to be around. I say that to anybody who visits with me about abolish the police or anything like that. They're going to be around, they're important, they're central. Doesn't mean it can't be better. But he'd still like to see some changes. You've got to invest in things that aren't just policing. We have to invest in prevention and intervention. We've got to invest in the people of our community as one of our tools. It's not just policing being the only answer. And I think we need our police to say the fact that we are looking more broadly doesn't mean it's an attack on you. It's me not wanting my nephews to come up dead. It's me wanting to make sure that we see something change long term. Dia, I'm wondering, I mean, as we look back, how has Kansas City changed? And has it changed enough? I do think there's been change. We can all probably agree there has not been enough change. I think decriminalizing marijuana and jaywalking and even parking tickets, for goodness sake, I think those are all steps that the protesters asked for. How are you feeling a year later? That's a tough question. I am a black woman, no secret. I am married to a black man and I have a black son. As a black wife, as a black mother, I want to have as much faith in the system as the people who are a part of it want me to. I don't want my son to fear police. I don't want police to fear my son either. I think we all have to do hard and deep work and look at where we have fallen short. A year later, it's hard to find someone who doesn't have an opinion. State of Minnesota plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin defendant. And the question remains, where does America go from here? 
We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. How are you feeling? Juror number 19. What's changed for you? I've made a lot of connections with Black Lives Matter movements and we're, we're organizing, we're building, we're thinking, we're making ideas, saying what's, what's next, where, where do we go from here? I think that there's been small changes um, that add up together to, to substantive changes. Now people here are aware that Kansas City is a place of political revolutionaries and black, a strong black liberation movement. I, I'm, I'm always open to new ideas. As long as they're not violent, as long as you're not hurting people, I'll listen. That's what I would like to see. We're a little bit better than our parents, but we're a long way, long, long, long way from perfect. And hopefully our kids will be that much better than us. I think everybody should be treated how they would treat their own sons and daughters. I'm as white as white can be. I'm just starting now, almost 40 years into my life, saying, wait a second. <laughs> There's more people out there than just white people and white ideals. And maybe we should start listening instead of talking so much. Things changed for me. Yes, I, I believe that personally things have changed because I have chosen to also see my biases, to see my prejudice. Sometimes the hardest person to change is yourself. This special episode of A People's History of Kansas City, 929, The Minutes That Moved Kansas City, was produced in collaboration with KCUR 89.3 and KSHB 41 Action News. I want to say a huge thanks to both of those newsrooms for their reporting and work on this collaboration. And a very special thanks to KCUR's Vicki Newton, my editor, and KSHB's Dia Wall for her vision. For more in-depth stories from all the reporters who contributed to the special, go to kcur.org. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email, Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, at kcur.org. Music this episode from Lil Baby, Her, Mickey Guyton, Marvin Gaye, and Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Take care, and thanks for listening.